This is the Reformed Libertarians Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. We explore free society from a Reformed perspective. You can find us at reformedlibertarians.com. We talk about culture, society, politics, economics, theology, philosophy, worldview, and more, helping those interested in liberty and human flourishing to think about them based in the Reformed faith. This is episode 12. We're discussing objections to non-monopolist or stateless civil governance, part four. I'm Gregory Baus here with Carrie Baldwin, and we'll be talking about the fourth and last in a series of four articles written by Carrie. In this article, she addresses a common failure of imagination and the question of the plausibility of stateless or non-monopolistic civil governance. As with the three prior articles, this one is less than a 10-minute read, and we link to the article in the show notes. As always, it's published at the Libertarian Christian Institute's website, libertarianchristians.com. So our first discussion in this series was concerning law and order and the question of the state's legitimacy. And that was in episode three, which addresses arguments made by John Locke. Our second discussion concerning human sinfulness and the question of the state's necessity is episode five, which addresses an argument made by James Madison. And then our third discussion concerning economics and social hierarchy and the question of the state's inevitability is in episode nine, which addresses a number of faulty assumptions made by Robert Nozick and Russell Kirk, respectively. All four of your articles have a preface, Carrie, saying, while you believe minarchist libertarians who hold to the legitimacy of a minimal or strictly limited state, and anarchist libertarians like ourselves, who hold to the need for stateless civil governance, can cooperate in pursuit of a free society, it's nevertheless worthwhile considering the disagreement between these two basic positions. So before we discuss this article in more detail, what would you say are the main points you cover? So first, I consider some reasons one might have difficulty conceiving of or imagining stateless civil governance. Then I consider some common objections related to historical examples of stateless civil governance. Then I explain a view of consistent sphere sovereignty and emergent societal order that lends strong support to the normativity of stateless civil governance. And finally, I conclude with a challenge to readers to reflect on some of the practical outlines of how civil governance can be realistically provided without the monopolization of a state. First, let's talk about some of the reasons you present that one might have difficulty imagining non-monopolistic civil governance. You mentioned that there's a tendency to develop a bias toward the familiar, what is sometimes called the mere exposure effect. Would you explain that? Yeah, so this is a fairly non-controversial idea, I think. We all tend to be more comfortable with what is known or previously experienced than with unknown or less frequently experienced things. If you were raised eating a certain kind of food, say, for example, spicy Southwestern food, most people with that experience will tend to develop a preference for it. That doesn't mean one couldn't develop a preference for it later on in life, but whatever sort of food 
of a certain kind that you're raised with, there's a tendency to consider it normal and to prefer it. Right. I grew up with a mother that cooked dinner and other meals on a regular basis. And while there were some dishes I didn't like, of course, no one's going to find it unusual that I prefer a lot of the food I grew up with. And that's true even though I traveled the world and widened my palate quite extensively and enjoy a variety of exotic dishes. It's still hard not to think of certain foods from my childhood, though I cook them myself now, as comfort food. Yeah, exactly. And we will link to an article that explains how a bias towards the familiar has been confirmed in a number of different studies. But the point is this. This also relates to what we're familiar with in societal life. You can see this most obviously with people who remain in abusive relationships. Simply because we live in a society with a state means that we've become familiar with that and would naturally develop a bias towards it. This despite that governance by the state is arguably not a normative situation and isn't the most conducive to individual and communal well-being. And that relates to two other reasons you mentioned for why one might have a hard time imagining non-monopolistic civil governance, which we've touched on in previous episodes. One is called the Overton Window, or the range of ideas within a given society that are generally thinkable. And the other is what some have called plausibility structures, or common institutions and practices in a society that tend to reinforce a belief's plausibility or help make it seem true. Carrie, can you illustrate these for us in some way? So the Overton window idea could just as well apply to other areas outside of politics. But take, for example, the idea of civil government by hereditary monarchy in the United States. Though it may be on the periphery of political thinking in our society, and though it isn't commonly considered a serious or viable political option anymore, it is still thinkable or something we can imagine. Hereditary monarchy is still within the range of ideas that a number of people wouldn't have a hard time discussing, even though it's considered fairly fringe by most. However, outside of small cult groups, perhaps the idea, for example, of civil government by a divinely appointed supreme prophet who is supposed to receive instructions directly from God is pretty well outside the Overton window. It's unthinkable in the sense that most would obviously reject it out of hand. Although change some of the terms there, such as civil government by a special class of experts who are supposed to receive infallible and unquestionable wisdom directly from their being the veritable embodiment of science, which was not only claimed by numerous communist and fascist tyrants, but was also actually claimed by U.S. government bureaucrats on national TV in the past three years. And with no exaggeration, you have a genuine equivalent to civil government by divine prophets. Yes, very, very true. Scientism is still a surprisingly effective opiate for a large part of the population. So a more accurate example of something largely outside the Overton window that is probably unthinkable for most people living in the U.S. 
is, of course, the position we are explaining and arguing for. Namely, that all the non-civil justice activities currently done by the state that are necessary for or most conducive to individual and societal flourishing can best be done by individuals or non-civil governance communities. And all administration of civil justice that constitutes civil governance can best be carried out by a variety of persons and institutions, none of which assert a monopoly over other people or property belonging to others. Okay, well, of course, I know what you just said, but that brief description probably just failed to fly through the Overton window for most people. The sounds just broke against the outside wall. And almost no one knows what we're talking about. But we soldier on. (laughs) What's this idea of plausibility structures and how does that relate to why someone might have difficulty imagining non-monopolist civil governance? Yeah, so we also link to an explanation of plausibility structures as well. But as I say in my article, these are realities of one's social environment, whether customs or institutions, that help make certain beliefs seem true. Those beliefs may actually be true, but the point is that whether actually true or not, a plausibility structure reinforces such beliefs. For example, the belief that scripture is God's word is true, and the belief that Christ alone is the Messiah is true. At the same time, participation in a local church of loving fellow believers can certainly reinforce these beliefs. Such participation helps one's Christian beliefs seem true. On the other hand, some societal realities can make false beliefs seem true. For example, the ever-increasing prominence of the state in our lives can make having some element of life seem entirely implausible without the state. That reminds me, of course, of the joke among libertarians. A joke because we've all experienced it, that one of the first objections some raise to the idea of statelessness is, what about the roads? (laughs) Yeah, that one's classic. Just for those of you who do have questions about the issue of roads, we include a link about that in the show notes. But Carrie, in addition to some of the questions and objections you've already addressed in your previous articles in this series, Here, you raise three other objections that might be posed by those who have difficulty imagining the plausibility of non-monopolistic civil governance. Let's highlight the first one and briefly touch on the others. So one of the main questions many raise is whether non-monopolistic civil governance has ever existed in the past. The fact that it has certainly lends strong support to its plausibility today. In episode nine, we mentioned ancient Ireland, and in episode three, we mentioned the law merchant and the not-so-wild west. We'll link to material on those again. But in this article, I also mention Quaker Pennsylvania in the late 1600s. That's a wonderful bit of history. The short of it is that after William Penn was granted the colony, and returned to England for a period, the people, now governing themselves, simply failed to conduct official colony government activities 
and didn't bother collecting taxes. Like so many other episodes of history, this is one they didn't teach you in government schools, I'm sure. Right. Another example I mentioned is medieval Iceland. They basically had a system of private property, non-territorial defense groups, and a series of private courts. And this non-monopolistic civil governance lasted for nearly 300 years. One more example I mentioned is what James Scott, a professor of cultural anthropology and political science at Yale, has called Zomia, a highland area in South Asia in which inhabitants for thousands of years diligently avoided rule by surrounding states. The late Jeff Riggenbach, in his highly informative podcast, The Libertarian Tradition, has a very helpful review of Scott's book, The Art of Not Being Governed, on the topic of Zomia. We'll link the audio and the text of that podcast in the show notes as well. The example of Zomia might raise in people's minds the second question you mention in your article, which is whether stateless civil governance might only work in relatively undeveloped rural agrarian societies. But you point out with a link to a helpful article by Murray Rothbard on division of labor that increased societal complexity with greater specialization and technological advance and concentrated numbers of people make non-monopolistic civil governance and the ability to freely coordinate in a host of other endeavors more plausible, not less. What's the third question you mention that those who have a hard time imagining the plausibility of statelessness might raise? This isn't quite as common as the question about the roads, but often enough, those who have some familiarity with global politics will suggest that Somalia is an example of how statelessness is unworkable. However, it turns out that making apples-to-apples relevant comparisons The people in Somalia have been better off without a state than with one. This includes factors such as higher life expectancy, lower infant and maternal mortality, improved sanitation, greater access to health facilities, improved health, and less extreme poverty. And we have a link to that. While a given society with a state might be preferable to a different society without one, the relevant comparison isn't between different societies but between a given society with or without a state. And Somalia is actually evidence in favor of the workability and benefits of going without the state's monopoly. In your article, Carrie, you then suggest that a consistent view of what has been called sphere sovereignty and the normatively emergent societal coordination, sometimes called spontaneous order, can perhaps make it easier to imagine non-monopolistic civil governance because these concepts present a picture of how a developed society with its various kinds of communities, including civil governance, can and should be arranged and how God has normed different societal relations to best operate and harmonize. We discuss sphere sovereignty to some extent in episode 9 in terms of a view of society that is neither individualistic nor collectivistic. Can you reiterate some of the key ideas about sphere sovereignty? Sure. 
Well, the idea has roots in the doctrines of the church and of civil governance as distinct institutions, as well as in development of the idea of the so-called three estates, that is clergy, nobles, and commoners, or church, civil government, and family. Sphere sovereignty was first formulated by Abraham Kuyper and then more precisely developed by Hermann Dreivert. One of the key ideas is that society is not only one thing. It's not a single whole. Rather, it's a plurality of different kinds of individual and communal relations. Right. And this idea is based on the biblical idea of variety or diversity in creation as God created everything after its own kind. Related to this created diversity are diverse God-given laws and norms. So each kind of thing normatively functions by its own kind of laws. God is ultimately sovereign over creation, and each distinct kind of community or societal sphere has its own distinct responsibilities directly accountable to God. Exactly. And while there may be hierarchies or authority arrangements within a particular community, such as a business or family or church or in civil governance, the relations between various communities is not properly hierarchical. God hasn't authorized any one community to regulate, monopolize, or lord it over any others. And in fact, understanding how society isn't a single thing entails that there can't be any legitimate single authority over all society. The idea that society is merely one sort of thing and that the state properly governs society overall, that's a fundamentally totalitarian view. In principle, it simply doesn't recognize any normative inner limitation on what civil governance is. And, moreover, it's fundamentally idolatrous because it attributes to the state what belongs to God alone and to Jesus Christ, to whom God has given all ultimate authority in heaven and earth. Okay, so that's a real brief summation of some of the key ideas of sphere sovereignty. Listeners, should be sure to look at the Reformed Libertarianism Statement, which we link to, especially Section 2 that addresses society, where we get into some more detail. But, Carrie, if civil governance is not designed by God to somehow govern society overall, then how do these different societal relations, including the various kinds of communities, How can they be coordinated harmoniously? This is one of the most remarkable things about the way God has created the world, that he's preserved in common grace. If the heavens declare the glory of God, a complex built-in order we can observe and study, but not control, then the same can be said of unfolding societal order built into reality by God. It must be recognized that society is far, far too complex and dynamic to be consciously planned and managed by any individual or group. Rather, societal coordination and harmonization emerges polycentrically, 
out of normative self-governance in each specific societal relation, including in each particular community of the several distinct kinds. One of the most fascinating facts is, while this comes about through humans acting, it is never the result of any individual's or community's specific design. Yes, we'll link to a popular level article on this topic, a video essay, as well as to a longer, more scholarly piece on the history of the idea of spontaneous order by Norman Barry. In part, Barry says the idea of spontaneous order is concerned with those regularities in society which are neither, one, the product of deliberate human contrivance, such as enforcement of legislation, nor, two, akin to mere natural phenomena, such as a rainstorm, which exists quite independently of human intervention. While the words convention and natural refer respectively to these two regularities, a third realm of social or societal regularities consists of conditions which are, as you said, Carrie, the result of human action, but not the result of some specific human intention. Societal order, then, is a distinct third kind of God-created order in the world that is not entirely apart from human actions, like the orbit of planets around the sun, but is also not something humans can design ahead of time and achieve, like the construction of a house. Right. It involves people having preferences and goals and making choices and doing things, using means to accomplish numerous ends. But at the same time, the finite nature of our knowledge and the super complexity of any society means that normative societal coordination cannot be achieved through regulatory dictates. And, of course, the so-called price system for goods, even on a market that's only relatively free, that makes economic calculation possible, is just one example of this polycentric and emergent order. So, concluding your article, Carrie, you point to a work by a fellow Christian, Bob Murphy, who is at least sympathetic to the Reformed faith on many points and who presents a practical outline in his booklet, sarcastically called Chaos Theory, about how we can have just civil governance or administration of civil justice through legitimate adjudication, law, and enforcement in a realistic and non-monopolist arrangement. Yes. In episode nine, we linked Murphy's article, Wouldn't Warlords Take Over? And for this episode, we'll link to the text and audio versions of Chaos Theory. We'll also link to similar material from David Friedman to his book, The Machinery of Freedom, and a video summary of some ideas presented there. We hope listeners are inspired to read Carrie's article that we've just discussed, entitled Inconceivable, The Plausibility of a Stateless Society, Concerning a Common Failure of Imagination and the Question of the Plausibility of Non-Monopolistic Civil Governance, and be sure to check out the previous articles in the series and the resources in the show notes and those linked in the article. 
And if you're willing to think it through, the practical material from Friedman and Murphy should be helpful. But for now, we'll end there. Thanks for listening to the Reformed Libertarians podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. See the website for each episode's show notes and sign up for our email list. Don't forget to rate and review Reformed Libertarians podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Find our email and social media on our contact page at reformedlibertarians.com.